This evening I want to explore further this uh, connection of the inner work transforming the judgmental mind that's been our focus on the retreat thus far. How in saying in a little more depth do we connect that with going into the relational field or the field of relationships, interaction with others, action and so forth. I wanted to begin with a quotation from the Jewish tradition, from the Midrash, from, I think from um, several thousand years ago. Great are the righteous, for they transform judgment into mercy. Great are the righteous, for they transform judgment into mercy. And so again, we've been doing these two broad types of inner practices. First, the mindfulness of judgments, the inquiry into their nature, exploring how it is. Uh, they are in the body, how they are in the mind, the stories we tell, inquiring more deeply through various tools and techniques, uh, dropping down practice, uh, contacting core beliefs. And now is the time that I have brought the poem on the dropping down practice, (laughs) as requested. And this is from uh, Jude Pollock. It's called Drop Down. She had done this practice many times. Drop down to what is real. Drop down, see what you feel. Drop down beyond your mind. Drop down, see what you'll find. And we've followed that trail uh, yet more deeply, uh, to some extent uh, accessing and clarifying um, for some of us uh, core beliefs, often unconscious, often long there in our experience, really organizing our judgmental mind, among other things. And we've We've uh, worked with that trail, and then we've also followed this aspect of the practice in which we develop the more awakened states. Is the volume okay in the back? Okay, good. We we develop the more awakened states, the particularly the states of the heart, the metta, the compassion, the joy, the equanimity, and so forth. And, and how to connect that inner training with uh, being in the world, being in speech, being in communication. Again, very, very crucial and something that, in my experience, we don't give as much attention to uh, in retreats and in our practice generally. There's this great need to find ways to 
deepen and sustain our practice in daily life and to connect it with retreats more fully. I'm very aware that it's been an interest of mine for a long time and of, of Heather's and of many, many of us. And it, it takes some attention. It's one of the reasons we want to offer the possibility of follow-up groups because this is long-term work. I think you know that, right? This is long-term work. There's, let me see where this... It's, there's a uh, um, cartoon, maybe a New Yorker cartoon, which illustrates the hope that the work with judgmental mind can be short-term. It shows a surgeon with a man, and he has a little bottle about this high. And in the bottle is this tiny being, which looks just like him. And the surgeon is talking to the man who's in the hospital bed and says, congratulations, Mr. Meguin. We have successfully removed your inner critic. (laughs) 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 If it were the case, we would only need you know, like a one-day retreat followed by a hospital visit, (laughs) something like that. So I think we have a sense that we're in this for the long term, right? And and we need to, uh, no matter what our retreat experience is, we need somehow to find a way to make this uh, work in daily life and have our daily life practice continuous with the retreat. doesn't matter how many deep insights we've had or blissful experiences, we have to make this real in daily life and, in a sense, uh, stabilize whatever understanding we have, whatever development of the heart, the clarity, the mindfulness. We have to do that in daily life. As the uh, jazz musician uh, Fats Domino says, it's not how far out you go, but how you bring it home. It's not how far out you go, but it's how you bring it home. It's really the spirit of our practice, ultimately. And so I want to give a little more clarity to this process of connecting our inner work and our relational work. And I want to do so um, in a few ways, but first I wanted to say a little bit more about the inner process of transforming judgments, just to follow up a little bit more from our work um, exploring or beginning to access core beliefs. I wanted to say a little bit more about that and how to work with them as an inner practice, but also a practice we can bring into interaction in daily life. You may have had a sense in exploring the core beliefs, that when they are present, particularly, again, these negative limiting beliefs, that it's something like a trance. It's like we're in a cloud. Uh, Tara Brock, who wrote a very helpful book in the context of our work called Radical Acceptance, probably many of you know that book, and she's a wonderful teacher, and her talks on this topic would be very complementary to our retreat and they're, they're available on Dharma Seed, she talks about the trance of unworthiness. 
And it's like that, right? It's when we're in the grip, it's like being um, lost, not having all of our faculties. And we can see that when we are triggered into those core beliefs, when we are reactive, in a sense, uh, we regress. We don't have our full wisdom and compassion. We often go to the equivalent of a very young state where we actually are, in a sense, very self-preoccupied. It's very hard to go outside of that trance. It's very hard sometimes to connect with people when we're in that place, right? Or we do so in reactive patterns. Um, There's a powerful quote that I heard once when I went to a a theater performance of an old play by uh, the the, uh, playwright uh, Ibsen. Uh, It was a play called Ghosts. I don't know if anyone's seen that, uh, but but there have been some contemporary productions. And this is from the play. And he uses the term ghosts partly in the sense of that from the past, which is possessing us, very much like core beliefs. A lot of the core beliefs are rooted in the past. And I wanted to read this to you. This is from the play. I am half inclined to think that we are all ghosts. It is not only what we have inherited from our fathers and mothers that exists again in us, but all sorts of old dead ideas and all kinds of old dead beliefs and things of that kind They are not actually alive in us, but they are dominant all the same, and we can never get rid of them. We don't agree with that, but (laughs) but this is is the play. This is in the play. Whenever I take up a newspaper and read it, I fancy I see ghosts creeping between the lines. There must be ghosts all over the world. They must be as countless as as the grains of the sands, it seems to me, and we are so miserably afraid of the light, all of us. Very poignant, very poignant way of saying, I feel stuck, I feel caught by those ghosts, by those, by those old beliefs. And, and yet we have found ways to explore those deep, more deeply rooted judgments and open to them and even have a sense of how they may be transformed in various ways. Uh, somatically through uh, the uh, practices to develop further states of awakening and so forth. And I wanted just to say a little more specifically uh, how practically to work when we sense that one of our core beliefs is uh, there, is in a way possessing us or dominating us. You know, when we feel triggered and in, in that cloud. Now, part of really the initial uh, step is to study those patterns, right? And it's a lot of work to actually know, oh, there seems to be a pattern. You know, it's like the one that I discovered with that uh, person who was like a boss person that I had a belief that, uh, in, a, in a sense, uh, people don't listen to me in some way, and it triggered something. And it took a while to actually be aware of that. Once I started being aware of it, I could see it in different settings. And we've, uh, for many of us, we've had a sense of those core beliefs and a sense of how they feel 
right? And so the first step is really looking for them and knowing when they are there, knowing what it feels like in the body. A major clue for a lot of us is that there is an old storyline. There is a repetitive storyline there. And sometimes we may not even know the core belief clearly, but we know the storyline because it's so repetitive. You know, it may be, why did you do that? Right? Or something like that. And we're talking again about the negative, um, the negative belief. So we want, to, we want to look at it. We want to study it because it actually these core beliefs only work well when they're not seen. When we actually look at them and bring them out into the light, especially with support in the community and so forth, something shifts with them. You know, there's a children's book about the monster that grew small. <laughs> and the idea is when you actually look at the monster in this children's book, the children would look at the monster and as it got closer to it, it got smaller. It wasn't so fearsome. And the core beliefs can be like that as we see them more clearly. I also wanted to quote from uh, Dr. Brene Brown, whom uh, Heather quoted from last time, has done a lot of work on shame and vulnerability and empathy. And she said, shame needs three things to grow in our lives, secrecy, silence, and judgment. And so when we start bringing these things to attention and even being, being able at times to share with others, something shifts. So the first step is really the noticing, the studying, seeing what it's like. And there's a certain amount of study that we have to do of our patterns. We have to really become experts at our core patterns of judgment so that we know them, so that we can say, oh, there you are. <laughs> yeah, there you are. And we can see them and to study them, to be with them, to say, uh, this is happening right now until we know it pretty well. And what I have found is that we, at a certain point, when we've studied it really well, I don't know how fruitful it is to keep studying it. We actually, at a certain point when it comes up and we've studied it well and we know we're just not trying to suppress it, we actually can say, much as we have in some of our practices, let me shift out of this. Let me move out of this state. And so this is maybe some, you know, sometimes there's been a criticism of psychotherapy as just wallowing in the same stuff for years and years and years. And this is a related point that I think we only need to know our core patterns uh, well enough um, and know that we're, again, we're not afraid of them, we're not trying to suppress them. And that's, that's a lot to get there. But once that's there, then if they come up, it may be the wisest thing actually to just say, sometimes it's to say, no, I'm not going there. Sometimes with some force. I've worked with some people and sometimes people use profanity. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> you know, we, we haven't, we haven't um, taught those techniques yet. <laughs> (laughs) 
level two, right? <laughs> I'm going to have to do that outside of Spirit Rock. Yeah. We'll, we'll get later to, you know, write speech and so forth. But, but some, sometimes it's a matter of actually seeing something come up. And again, if we may be under stress, we may see the same pattern coming a lot. And at a certain point, we just say no. And sometimes it's a matter of will and discipline. We say, I'm not going there. I see you. A little bit like the Buddha in the ancient texts has this relationship with Mara. Some of you know Mara is the embodiment of greed, hatred, and delusion. And there are, there are a lot of uh, uh, discourses, or suttas, they're called. Suttas that means the same thing as discourse, in which the, the Buddha has these meetings and, sa- and the Mara is trying to fool the Buddha. And the Buddha says, I see you, Mara. And at that point, Mara sometimes says, I am seen. And in, in the text, it says, and he slinks away. Or other times, I am seen, and he goes off in a puff of smoke. And I think that's, that's kind of a, a mythical presentation, but it's very much the uh, quality of clear mindfulness with a difficult state. Same thing. We see something like that, and if we have enough strength with our mindfulness, maybe sometimes enough clarity, uh, the seeing it and saying, I see you, I'm not going there. Uh, no, you know, sometimes forcefully can be exactly what's called for at that moment. Now, sometimes we are lost in the core beliefs and we actually um, can't be mindful of them because they're too strong and we feel lost or stuck. And something I've been interested in is uh, the importance of knowing the distinction between really being mindful and being lost or stuck. And I found that in meditation, a lot of people think they're being mindful and they're lost or stuck. And it actually is not helpful to, because when we're lost or stuck, we're actually being taken away and we're, in a sense, strengthening that pattern. And so to know that distinction is important. And I was talking with someone today and was thinking, well, what's a guideline for that? And I, I came up just somewhat randomly. I said, well, there should be at least two-thirds of the time mindfulness. And if there's, this is just me thinking it out today. But, but that it's something, you know, it means that there's significantly more mindfulness than there's not mindfulness. And that if there's maybe a third mindfulness and two-thirds being in, in the stuff, then I would say we're somewhat lost or stuck. And at that time, that's when we use the antidotes. That's when we shift our state out of the core belief or out of the storyline. And again, uh, you know, most dramatically, that can happen at very vulnerable times. Maybe we're at a, in a vulnerable state for whatever reason or it's three in the morning and a, something has happened yesterday and I wake up and, and say, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> And the uh, core belief comes in its many manifestations. You know, my, you know, my body contracts some. The storyline is there. And I have enough mindfulness to know that, but I can't really stay with it and follow it. Right? And then I invoke metta, or I invoke compassion, or I invoke one of the heart practices. And again, a reason they have to be practiced or they won't be strong enough at that moment. 
really crucial point. It has to be practiced. And by practiced, I find myself saying 10 or 15 minutes a day is significant. Right? So it's not like, okay, God, practice metta two hours a day or else you'll be meat for the core belief. <laughs> <laughs> So we, we have to practice it. And at those moments, we call upon that uh, heart, heart practice. And that can shift us out of it. Or maybe we work with the moving to a posture. And maybe that works to, with it for us. We can actually go to that posture and maybe that helps. Or we have some other way of shifting, of shifting away. Because that's important when the core belief is there, just to basically get out of it. If we can't be mindful, it's overpowering, shift the state, get out of it. You know? And that, that, is, that is wise and um, compassionate. And so, for example, uh, I told the story, I think, a few nights ago, of one person I worked with who had that uh, core belief come up, a version of it, I, I will mess up today, which was linked to a core belief about inadequacy. And that would come up. He studied it enough. He really got to know it. He saw how it arose almost every morning. You know, almost every morning. And again, a person who's quite functional. You know, a successful job, a good marriage, uh, and so forth. And yet this was there and, and was connected at times with a history of depression in the past. You know. And he was able, he had taken James Barrows' Awakening Joy class. And for a period of time, um, the joy practices were his antidote. And they had enough power, because he had done them enough, he would, call, he, would, with the, he would hear the voice in the morning, and he would call upon the joy practices, and it would shift. And it worked. And he would do that every morning. And it, the, vo- the voice, uh, didn't continue, and over time it lost its power. Right? But it needed, it needed that kind of uh, strength. And we can also, if there is a way that we can <clears throat> be in touch with that transformed belief and somehow manifest, again, it could be through posture, there could be some image, maybe we sing a song, we, have a, uh, we go to a particular beautiful place, that, that we, we may each have ways that we can uh, uh, evoke the transformed state or the reversal of that core belief. And that's also, that's also a tool. And this, of course, takes time, you know, and it's, it's a long process, and, you know, and, and yet it's workable, as we've said. There, it can work, and, you know, it's, it's fascinating. I was... Uh, when I was doing a very sustained period of work with judgments, I would track my dreams. And near the end of one particular period of practice, I had this dream that I had like a a Wild West wanted poster of myself in my room. It was on the wall, you know, wanted, whatever for... Um, you know, 
horse larceny or something. <laughs> or, but it was basically like want, a wanted poster. I don't remember actually what I was wanted for, but I was wanted by the authorities. And, and I said in the dream, I think it's time to take that poster off the wall. Right? And it was a very tender moment. You know, very, and amazing that the psyche gives those images, right? You know, and, and sometimes we may find our sense of the transformation of the core belief from dreams. There may be images that come in dreams or in visions or maybe something resonates for us. We can bring those practices, as you may have gathered by the examples, we can bring those into interaction. And that's really, I, I want to talk about four ways to bring our inner work more into the relational field. The first is actually bringing the inner practices into an interactive setting. That's the first. The second is working with speech very consciously as a practice. The third, and I'll have to see with the time whether I get to all four of these. I may, if the time is such, I may do, um, I may not do all four, but I'll, I'll name them and just see how the time works. The third is working particularly with our thinking and noticing how when we're judgmental, we increasingly generalize and move away from direct experience. So it's really that the third is tracking our thinking. And the fourth is cultivating empathy. It's cultivating that kind heart in an interactive setting. And all four of those can really make connections with our inner work and be wonderful ways to bring the transformation of judgmental mind into our interactions. So I'll say a little bit about all four of them, hopefully, hopefully tonight. So first, it's uh, important to know that the inner practices, when we've done them a lot, can be brought into our everyday interactions. I think many of us do that already quite a bit. Obviously, we can bring mindfulness into our interactions. We can bring mindfulness into our speech. We were exploring it some just earlier today, that we can have a sense of presence. And some aspects of it are harder. You know, it's harder when we're in the midst of a lot of interaction to really track, oh, I just was reactive. I just had that reactivity. Over time, we can get better at that. But we can clearly just track our minds to some extent when we're in interactions and we can maybe track and say, oh, there was a judgment. If we're doing a lot of inner noticing of judgments, we could track and notice it sometimes. Oh, there was a judgment. Or if we've really gotten familiar with the core beliefs or that, you know, the, the basic stories, we can track those and notice them. And it's very crucial. And we can tell ourselves, you may be, you know, um, uh, you may be right in the middle of interaction, but I think you got triggered just now. <laughs> you know, which, uh, and being triggered, it might be likely that you would be reactive and, poss- and very likely uh, say and do things that are reactive, not so skillful. So the mindfulness can be invaluable. And, and we can bring 
the mindfulness into our into our interactions. Um, we can also bring the heart practices into interactions, and so when we do them a lot, sometimes we can be skillful at just using them for short periods of time, like using going to metta or going to forgiveness. I I use forgiveness uh, often for small interactions. You know, if I've just been cut off on the highway or on a road, uh, and I notice myself uh, making a comment, I might want to go right away to forgiveness and something I can do in one minute and still be a skillful driver. You know? and, and I can sometimes also uh, go to metta. Another important technique is that uh, of actually taking breaks. It's actually a very crucial technique. Is like when we're triggered, take a break from the social setting. Heather and I often talk about the importance of bathroom breaks. We need some centering. Go to the bathroom. It is extremely socially <laughs> awkward for people to make a comment about even how many times you go to the bathroom. (laughs) This is an underutilized spiritual practice. (laughs) But uh, it doesn't have to be the bathroom. The principle is when you lose your center, uh, take a few moments to try to come back. You know, and it's so crucial. And it's kind of obvious, right? But it's um, often we just stay in the reactivity. But if we can remember that, it can be really, really crucial. It's helpful in looking at the relational field or interactions to contemplate that there are, in a sense, um, with two people, let's say, imagine a dyad, there are five, I, I like to think that there are five different kinds of practice that those two people can do. I can, for example, I can try to, in the context of the relationship, do my own inner work with whatever comes up, both to some extent on the spot and also in my own more private uh, practices, right? And the other person can do the same. So that's two, okay? And then I can try to be skillful and wise with my speech, as might the other person. So that's four. And then we can try to be collaborative and skillful in our interactions, which it makes five. And of course, we could, we could um, divide the collaborative practices into a lot of different kind of practices, but it's helpful to see that with every interaction there are five possible kinds of practices and in some of them, some of the challenging types of relationships, guess what? The other person is not doing the inner practice or the speech practice and doesn't want to collaborate. But we often forget we can always do our two practices. I can always do my inner work and have a commitment no matter what else is happening. Sometimes we say, oh, the other person won't be empathic with me or won't even talk with me about what's happening. 
I give up, you know. And I think that can be a mistake, that we can really uh, see it that way and commit that no matter what happens, I'm committed to my practice. Kind of a radical stance, you know, um, and can be very helpful. Speech can also be this powerful practice. We, we had an introduction to the speech practice this afternoon. And I think I'll, I'll do different pieces uh, in our different sessions. So a little bit today, but not, not too much. But just I think we can see how a skillful speech practice is so connected with skillful, works with, skillful work with judgments, right? Because judgments, especially judgments towards others, will manifest with speech. We could also think of our own inner speech in a certain way. How do I speak to myself? And we can see that judgments are really, um, they're reactive forms of speech, either inner speech or outer speech. And things can happen very, very quickly. One of my favorite um, expressions of just how rapidly things happen with uh, reactive or judgmental or unskillful speech is is also from a New Yorker cartoon. It shows a woman standing up in front of a couch talking to what looks like uh, a detective who has a pad of paper and is uh, taking notes. Behind the couch, there is a police officer. And also we can see behind the couch, there are two legs on the floor (coughs) sticking out. And the woman is speaking, and this is the caption for the cartoon. He misspoke. I misheard. Shots rang out. (laughs) Is that familiar? (laughs) And so speech is so, so crucial. I'll say a few words about the, the, uh, a starting point is making a commitment to these four ethical guidelines, which are really uh, like most of the ethical guidelines uh, that, for example, that we took the first evening, they're really about making a commitment to non-harming and being as caring as we can. They really come down to that. And the guidelines are first, to be truthful, second, to be helpful, again, third, to be Uh, coming out of a good heart, really the heart of metta, as much as we can, which doesn't mean being overly nice. It can also, we can have that kind of tough love or we can have a a firmness, set boundaries, but do so out of um, an open heart, really. That's hard, it's challenging, but that's, I just want to make clear that when we talk about coming out of the heart, we we are not uh, saying we have to be nicey-nice at all. It's really, it goes along with being very firm, very decisive. And the fourth is this quality of appropriateness, especially a good timing. So just a few words about each of these. The quality of truthfulness is particularly crucial. And sometimes when uh, right speech or wise speech is talked about simply, this is the main criterion. 
It's to be truthful. And again, we can use we can use these four criteria as supports for our mindfulness. We can really take our take these criteria and say and ask ourselves, kind of have a, a way of continually asking ourselves, am I being truthful? Am I being helpful? And sometimes when we take these guidelines, we have our radar comes up for when we're not truthful. And I, was, I was mentioning my teenage history with my feet. So I'm not going to go further into them now. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't, never planned at all to speak so much about my feet. <laughs> okay. And so we have that, that sense of uh, really asking, am I being truthful? And that would, many of us, maybe we don't overtly lie, but we ask, do I exaggerate? Are my judgments exaggerations? You know, many of them are. Often the judgmental mind goes way beyond the data to make a stronger point. <laughs> right? And we want to track, track that. If we're really tracking truthfulness, we will catch a lot of judgments. And the same thing with helpfulness, because judgments generally aren't so helpful for either myself or others. So working with the helpfulness, again, can be a really valuable intention. These are all intentions. There's not like the, the ethical guidelines aren't these uh, police officers that are out there to get us. They're really guidelines that we take and that we just very kindly say, uh, notice when we're not following them. And then the guideline of wanting to come from a good heart in our speech, you know, which can translate into empathy, which we'll talk about later, and can really be, it's really a, que- a question. Am I coming out of my heart? Am I coming out of an intention to connect through the heart with this person? Again, it doesn't have to mean something sentimental or even dramatic, but am I, am I present with my kindness or you know, much like we were talking about earlier, earlier today. And then that question of appropriateness or timing, really asking, you know, asking, asking those questions about that. And these can be, this, this is um, often a starting point for our skillful speech to work with those guidelines. And we can have them be present for us. I, uh, when I was working with these, I put these guidelines next to my telephone. And sometimes I would look right at the telephone. Telephone would ring. I would say to myself, truthful, helpful, good heart, good timing, hello. (laughs) And I would also keep those guidelines when I'd be at meetings. I'd write them down on a sheet in front of me at meetings. I've had students who've worked with me who, for difficult discussions, they wrote the guidelines on their hands. Right? And... They can go a long way. They're really protective. Sometimes we think of the ethical guidelines as they protect us. And I think you, did you say that first time? They protect us, especially from ourselves. <laughs> right. Okay. So very important uh, aspect is having our speech be practiced. This is a starting point to work with the guidelines. Again, practically speaking, we could take each guideline and really give attention to it for a week or a month and do that over a period of time. I, I've worked with groups doing that, and it can be really very, very helpful. So I think I'm going to just do one, one more of the points. 
which is the one that with this is the third point. And I'll bring in empathy more tomorrow, I think. Um, and this is a third point. This is a third support for bringing our judgment work into our relationships. And this has to do with tracking our thinking and particularly in an, in an interactive way. This is a model that originally came out of the field of organizational development. It's called the ladder of inference. It was developed by a man named uh, Chris Ardress, who uh, I think has been both at MIT and Harvard. And it was uh, designed to just clarify uh, clarify different levels actually of thought. I've wanted to use it to help with working with judgments and also use it a lot for meditation. What it basically says is that uh, there is, in a sense, an infinite pool of data, of possible, um, possible experiences that we might have. At this moment, uh, many or most of you are listening to me. You could, <laughs> you could, with your attention, be going to the past or the future. And perhaps that occasionally happens. <laughs> you know? and, and we could also, instead of listening to me, you could be really looking at the Buddha. Or you could be really looking at your neighbor's uh, socks or you could go with any of the senses in a lot of different directions, particularly through the imagination. And there's kind of a, there's an infinite availability of potential experiences right now. Out of that infinite pool, we choose a certain amount of data to attend to. You know, so here we may be uh, you know, listening to me, maybe having thoughts that we follow, that we, that we track some, we may, um, uh, you know, there may be different things that arise in experience. And of course, uh, when we're walking down the dining hall, it may be similar. We may look at this, we may look at that. We select a certain amount of data. And then, interestingly, on the basis of what we actually attend to or perceive, we also start attributing meanings to it. You know, we... Uh, we may find, oh, that's a really good idea. I should put that into practice. Or, yes, more bathroom breaks. <laughs> that, may, you know, that may have really um, had impact on your meaningfulness for this evening. Right? Or you may have noticed something, or you may, uh, you may have something else may have had meaning, or maybe it didn't have meaning. So you can see how we we attribute meaning, and then we go further. We may make further assumptions. We may attribute meaning. I really um, like this judgment work. I think I'd like to um, go listen to all the talks about judgments that are on Dharma seed. You know, I'm going to do it. Or I'm going to, you know, we may be enjoying the talks and we may say, I'm going to really listen to the rest of the talks. These, you know, so we maybe make assumptions, we draw conclusions, we may set ourselves up for, for action, we may even have some underlying, you know, some, some belief may form. I'm not so concerned about the differences between what happens as we go up the ladder, but it's very interesting that with a judgmental mind, we tend to go up the ladder. Well, let me, let me maybe give an, uh, 
uh, illustration just of how this works in, in practice. So we could imagine, we could imagine, um, uh, let's say we have a meeting and someone um, comes to the meeting. It's an hour meeting. Someone comes in 20 minutes late. Okay. And maybe the person has done that before and you're a part of the group, right? So um, there's observable data. You actually notice this person is late. And then you may start going up the ladder. I like the phrase, we go up the ladder. What might you, what might you say about this person? You might, some of it might be judgmental. Some of it might not be judgmental. What might you say? This person is always late. The judgmental mind likes the word always. <laughs> Track the word always. One of my teachers in skillful language said, always track always. <laughs> we want to look for always because it's, it's often the sign of going up the ladder. And as we actually, part of, so part of what this model does, it helps us actually notice judgment sometimes more quickly. And we can actually track what's happening when we're talking with someone. Oh, that person's going up the ladder. You know, uh, I didn't do the dishes tonight. And my partner says, you never do the dishes. Has that ever happened? <laughs> right? And the mind can go to always. And a lot of the judgmental mind will go that way. It will go up the ladder. Right? Judgments tend to go up the ladder. They tend, in other words, not to be directly rooted in the actual experience, but they generalize and they go, you know, what so? What was another one? Um, you don't. The person doesn't care, right? I might go to that, and of course, I may not know, right? You know, what might, what else uh, might you think about the person? So those two might be judgmental, right? Those two might be judgmental. What might be another one that's either judgmental or not judgmental? Hmm. He is self-centered. She is self-centered. He or she is self-centered, right? And that could, be, that could have a real judgmental flavor, right? He or she is overcommitted. We, we don't need overcommitted people in our... See, going up the ladder <laughs> in our organization, you know? Yeah, maybe one more. Car, maybe the person has car trouble, right? Different flavor, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a hypothesis, but the person hasn't fully gone up the ladder because it's like maybe, and it comes out of a different place, right? A lot of what happens with judgments or when we're triggered, the energy sends us up the ladder to make sense of something which is, can be painful. When we're suffering or reactive, we will tend to be driven up the ladder. And we know a lot of those core beliefs are way, way, way overgeneralized, right? I didn't do well on my job evaluation, and I go to the core belief, I'm inadequate, right? You can see, see how this model can, can be helpful to some extent? There's, a, there's a, a funny story from Sylvia Borstein, who tells the story, and she has told this publicly, so it's okay to repeat it, but she told the story of wanting to do a retreat at the Zen Center. And she called up the switchboard at the Zen Center with the intention to register for a short retreat at the Zen Center. 
and the switchboard operator said, you want to talk to Steve, but Steve isn't here now. Could you call back in the afternoon? She said, okay. She called back in the afternoon, and, and uh, the switchboard operator said, oh, Steve was just here, but he just walked out. And Sylvia said, okay, I'll call back later. She said, yeah, why don't you call back tomorrow morning? He should be there. And she called back the next morning, and the switch, same switchboard operator said, and it's a true story, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> the same switchboard operator said, you know, Steve is going to be late today. He's not here. At which point Sylvia said, I guess this means I'm not supposed to do the retreat, huh? And the switchboard operator in proper Zen style said, no, I think it means that Steve isn't here yet. (laughs) (laughs) So do you get a sense of, I find the model extremely helpful. It really can illuminate my own judgments, and we can use it as just another tool to ask, am I going up the ladder? Is another person going up the ladder? And of course, what we learn in meditation is how to go down the ladder to more direct experience, to be with the thoughts, to notice them, to be with the emotions. And mindfulness training is a training to go down the ladder. That's not to say that uh, meaning or thoughts or generalizations are the problem. But unconsciously going up the ladder, not knowing we're doing it, overgeneralizing, making uh, interpretations that are not based on data, that can be a big problem. And we can see that in our judgmental mind, it often is that way. And so this can be a tool. You can, it's really related to what Heather was talking about last night, like uh, Byron, the work of Byron Katie. Uh, one of the questions she asked you know, about a judgment is, is it true? And it could be to say, have I gone way up the ladder? Have I overgeneralized? Have I said always? Or have I gone to a core belief which implies total permanence of this problem? Right? And that is way up the ladder, and it's not really based on direct experience. I'll say a word about empathy. This is the fourth. Remember the first of these ways of bringing the judgment work into our relational life is to bring the, find ways to bring the inner work, different practices. Even I, I, I do the dropping down practice when it's become um, very familiar to me. I do that in social settings. And, and it can be done just like, because it can be done really briefly, sometimes you can know, oh, I'm reactive. Let me drop down. What's there? It can be really just clarifying in a, in a short time. So we can bring when we get good at them, the different inner practices into interactive settings. That's number one. Number two, take our speech as a form of practice and develop that further. We'll be going more into that uh, tomorrow some. Third, can really track our thoughts for when they go up the ladder. We can also track other people's thoughts. For me, it actually is helpful. I don't get so hooked by other people's judgments where if I see, wow, that person's gone way up the ladder, way over generalizing, and we track that. I don't get so hooked, you know, it helps, you know. It's one further tool. 
And then the last is empathy. And this is really about bringing the awakened heart into interaction. It's really about having the intention in our interactions to connect with the other person and to have interest in the other person's inner experience. And this is actually based in our natural biology. Our natural biology, particularly the limbic system, and there's a whole system of social connection that's wired into us, is based on actually connecting empathically with others. And we get it, um, what, um, conditioned out of us to significant extent, to some extent, you know, some of us more than others. And empathy, so empathy is an intention practice of in an interaction, wanting to connect with the other and wanting to tune in to what the other person might be feeling and what's important for the other person. It's particularly important for judgments because when we're judgmental and reactive towards another, empathy tends to go out the window. And it's a polarized, non-empathic situation. Does that make some sense? You know, that when we are really, the same thing with for ourselves, when we're judgmental towards ourselves, we don't have empathy for ourselves. And so this cultivation of empathy, really the metta practice, in fact, all of the heart practices are really ways of developing empathy, particularly for ourselves, particularly to really know what we're feeling and to hold that as if with the care of a parent, of a good parent, we shall say. And so to some extent we have to train to be more empathic, both towards ourselves and towards others. And yet it's this beautiful quality. It's this amazing quality. And I think when we are with people who have that quality of empathy, there's something that gets really transmitted. We really feel seen or heard or the person is just there for us and interested. And it's a, again, it's an intention practice. I'll, I'll end with two, uh, one story and one song. I'm not going to sing it. I'm going to play it. So don't get worried. <laughs> but actually, no, I could, I could sing a good song. So that was a little bit. No, but we'll, so the, okay. the story, the story is an empathy story. And the song is about self-empathy. The story is about empathy for others. And the song is about empathy for self. And so the story actually was told to me by my mom, Bernice, um, when I was um, working on the subject of speech practice. And we were talking about the guidelines of being truthful, being helpful, coming out of a good heart, and, and the quality of timing. And she told me a story of an experience that had happened 10 years before we, uh, before we talked, but that had stayed with her. The actual experience lasted about a minute. And it was an experience of seeing another person be really empathic. And it was a story that involved actually a former teacher of mine named Robert Lifton. Some of you know him. He's a 
quite well-known psychiatrist. Um, and uh, I think he is now, he, he must be in his 80s or so now. Um, and he, he did some groundbreaking work. He wrote a book on, I think on Hiroshima. He was a person who coined the phrase psychic numbing. He looked at, he looked at, he, he did studies of brainwashing. He also did a lot of very important work on, um, related to uh, human rights issues. He was, he was an activist in that way. And my mom went to a talk that he gave. Um, and at the end of the talk, there were questions and answers. And a woman asked a question which seemed to elicit a collective groan. It seemed to be based on this total misunderstanding of what he had said. And there was a kind of collective groan and people were waiting for Lifton to correct her and say, that's not what I meant. And easily could have been a judgmental comment. And he answered it really carefully. And I I know this because he was a really, really warm, warm guy, really like a, the word that was coming to my mind was a, a mensch, you know, mm-hmm. you know, like a really. For everyone know what that means? Okay, it, it's in in uh, Jewish tradition. It means like this really grounded, earthy, warm person. And he spoke to her, and he said, "Oh, I could really see why you might have thought that." And he stayed with it, and he connected with her, and didn't criticize her in the least and talked with her. And he, in a short time, he wound his discussion around to actually saying what he had said, but in a way almost that she was getting there or her comment was helping the crowd, the group to get there. And it was, she was not put down. She was kept connected. And he, he, and that story which lasted about a minute, was remembered 10 years later. And we talked about it. And I think that quality of empathy can work like that. And then the last is to play a song by Eve Decker. And this is a a song called Simple Truth. And Eve uh, often sings around Spirit Rock. And this came from actually from a day long that, we, that I did in April on, on judgments. And she has been working with me a lot and actually working with people herself on judgment. And this is a song that she wrote. And we'll, we'll end with this. Um, my name is Eve Decker, and I have been um, just a little louder. A med- meditation practitioner for more than 20 years, and so I've done a lot of loving-kindness practice, including two eight-day retreats. And I've also been a student of Donald's for a number of years, and I've taken two of these day-longs in the past and done the ongoing group. It took me a long time with all that practice to bust through the glass ceiling around self-love, and I thought it was just me, but I think it is a cultural thing. I know I read that Descartes equivalent, equivalent okay? makes the 
connection between self-love and narcissism and there's an idea that somehow if I practice self-love I'll, I'll be horribly self-obsessed and self-aggrandizing and somehow not of service anymore. Oh, my experience has been that when I really experience true self-love I'm much, much more capable of loving others and much more skillful at loving others because I know how I've had the direct experience of loving myself. So I had that through this work and I wrote this song about that, that intersect between letting go of judgment and really loving myself and it's called Simple Truth. Simple Truth. choices I can wait for all these voices tell me I have made it or I can love myself the way I am the way I see it there are two choices try to do it their way or find my own rejoicing music and play I've been given a responsibility to love myself like I would love a child, chaotic, wild and turning, building bridges, bridges burning, just as I am to love me. self-hatred protects me until the day no one rejects me if I reject myself first your coldness might not hurt as much maybe if I work harder try more do more faster longer the day will come when I feel loved by everyone I've been given a responsibility to love myself like I love trees. Okay, when branches crack and fall, no striving, no have-tos at all. Sparkling green that breathes me just as I am, loves me. No, I do not have it all together. I never have, and I never will. And I know that you don't have it all together either. Cause nothing here was made that way. We're all falling. We're all flying, we're all playing, we're all dying. We've been given a responsibility to love ourselves like we love freedom 
using courage just to see the simple truth of you and me. Love looks like humble gratitude, like endless forgiveness. Just as we are, just as we are, just as we are, just as we are, just as we are. way I see it, there are two choices. We can wait for all these voices to tell us we have made it. Or we can love ourselves as we are. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.